0: This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome to the snowsbest.com podcast. Diving deep into the emotions and experiences
1: that mountain life provides for skiers and boarders from first-timers to elite athletes. With your host, Miss Snow-It-All, Rachel Oakes-Ash. I'm Rachel Oakes ash aka Miss Snow at All, and welcome to the Snow's Best Podcast, where we dive deep into the emotions we all feel in life and on the mountain. Today's topic is vulnerability, and today's guest is a former ski racer for Australia, the founder of North America's largest cat ski terrain operation, Big Red Cats in Canada, devoted husband to Paula and father to three girls, Sammy, Gabby and Frisia, and now author of a self-published memoir, Growth, Truth, Adventure, Love inspired by his journey with stage four terminal bowel cancer here to share his wisdom with us welcome Karen oh, thanks very much that
0: was lovely introduction
1: it's all true though isn't it I think we should start today with your hearing all about your ski story before we hear about anything else so yeah sure give us a little bit of history about how you ended up in Roseland in Canada in charge of the world's largest well, what's North America's largest terrain cat ski
0: yeah it was a sort of a roundabout way but I was a finance guy in Sydney and doing really well, but I just didn't really love it. So, I decided to start looking around for ski areas to buy because I had all this financing experience. We didn't have enough money to do it, but I thought, well, I'll just find some investors. So, after looking at a couple of New Zealand resorts, we looked at Red that was for sale and I did an information memorandum and a business plan for the resort and found some investors And we put in an offer and we got outbid. But as part of that business plan, I'd sort of put in a cat ski operation because um, Fernie had Island Lake um, cat skiing at the time. And that was just producing beautiful skiing and beautiful publicity for Fernie. So I thought something similar could happen at Red. Um, So when we missed out on the bid to buy Red Mountain, we just pivoted and started
1: the cat ski operation. Not just any cat ski operation though, was it? No. Was it as big as it was when you first bought it, with the, the terrain, or did you expand the terrain as you went on? We initially
0: thought that it would just be a, a one snowcat or two snowcat operation, because at the time, the biggest operations were just two snowcat operations. So we thought, you know, that that's a reasonable size, but after maybe about 2 or 3 years of running it i realized that there was just huge potential that we could run 4 or 5 maybe even 6 cats but in order to do that we really needed to get out there and do just tons of glading and building runs out of the forest but that's you know just such a big job and such a big long term project that you know it took sort of you know 15 or 16 years to do that essentially
1: But you did most of that yourself as well, though, didn't you? You were glading, you were behind the machinery and holding the saw and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah,
0: we ended up glading over 300 runs. So that's creating out of the forest uh, runs that you couldn't ski before. They were just too thick. But once we had gladed them, they were just beautiful ski runs and, and sort of worked out you know, incredibly well. And we glided about 300 of those and probably I did about 150 of those myself. So it was a big job. And, uh,
1: how did you end up here, though? Like you ski raced for Australia. Yeah. You learned to ski from as a little tacker. Yep. Tell us about how you fell in love with the mountains as a child. I think my first non
0: ski trip was when I was about two and a half, and my family left me for a ski trip to Charlotte's Pass, and I was left alone with my grandma, and I don't think I stopped crying for two days. So uh, I think at that time I was just like. Yes, skiing, I'm never going to miss a ski trip again. But then I, I sort of got out there and just as a kid, I, I just started to love it. We'd go every weekend and school holidays as a family. You know, I got lucky. My sister, Katie, she won NASTA and then the NASTA finals that were at Threadbow. Wow. And she was really good. As a result, she got an offer to join the Threadbow Ski Race Club. And because I was her little brother, I sort of just got dragged along in her wake and joined the Throbo Ski Race Club, which is, you know, just fantastic because we had probably some of the best coaching in the world. There was David Price, who had, you know, raced the Hanukkah only a few years before. And wow. we had Don McGuinness, who was the first Australian to um, complete the Bundes Sportheim, which is the sort of highest level <laughs> ski instructor qualification in the world. But yep. then for ski racing, I noticed that just love that. But even more, I just loved starting to hike out into the backcountry and starting to do that stuff because it's just the sort of ultimate expression of freedom. And, you know, it just sort of lifted my heart and sort of touched me in a lot of ways. So, you know, that was the beginning.
1: Do you remember your first time going out into the backcountry and having that soulful experience? Probably
0: in 1982, followed 1981. 1981 was the best winter that Australia had ever had. It was just incredible powder everywhere and the resort was just amazing and they had to dig out all the lifts and that sort of thing paradoxically or strangely, the next year in 1982 was the absolute worst. Like the most amount of skiing that you could do, the only lift that was really open at Thredbo for most of the year was the Basin T-Bar and the rest was just closed. So it was just terrible. But as a result, we ran the Thredbo Ski Racing Championships on what we used to call Scheisberg but it's now called Signature Hill, just behind Threbo. Mm -hmm. So, we hiked up, we boot packed and we smoothed out the surface and we ran the whole race just hiking. And then because there was no snow at the resort, one of the coaches, David Price, took us twice out to Mount Kosciuszko. And I think that just really opened my eyes um, sort of in 1982 that there's just so much good terrain out there. And we jumped off the big cornice at the top and then skied the lovely windblown snow underneath. And it was just such a, you know, revelation. It was just so lovely.
1: So those guys that actually introduced you to backcountry and and what's outside of the resort, did they ever end up coming cat skiing at Big Red Cats? No,
0: sadly, David never did. He's just a wonderful guy, but his kids got like just fully involved in sailing. His daughter won an Olympic silver medal a few years ago, and wow. and his son's just incredible. So they sort of got caught up in that world. But they weren't so much really into the sort of the backcountry. That point, they just loved skiing. And in a year where there was no snow at the resort, it was just like, well, let's hike up to Cosy and let's you know yeah. let's keep going. But it was really interesting until about 1981 or 1980. There was a really cool little cat skiing operation just at the top of Threadbow and i never got to go in it but i'd heard about it and i really wanted to go and they finished it because the national parks you know obviously didn't want it so you know so who ran that just through by resort so they ran it for really? nearly 11 12 years you know they'd just drive out to cozy or up onto some of the ranges there and have a great time
1: and would they then – had they cut roads as well so no. they'd come down and get you at the bottom? Yeah, they had roads, but they hadn't any yep.
0: particular ones. They just drove where the cat drivers knew they could get up or down and that sort of thing. So,
1: oh, Wouldn't you love to have that now, especially this season? <laughs> it would be
0: so nice because, you know, I still get out there all the time and there's just so few people mm. and to be able to get people out very low-risk way like that would open so many people's eyes, you know, to what we have. Yeah, it would,
1: wouldn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, when did you become a mountain guide? That was much later.
0: That was sort of when we first moved to Rosslyn and were thinking about starting the, the cat operation. That's where I really started to get my first ski guide qualifications. So, I started off with the, the avalanche, the professional level avalanche qualifications, and then moved into the ski guide qualifications. And, it, you know, it's a really difficult process. It takes mostly people about eight, 10, 12 years to get it. And a lot of people never do. I think in the group that I started with, out of about 24, you know, two people ended up getting the final level three certification just because it's difficult and that sort of thing. But I had, you know, super strong motivation. We, in the first few years of the CAD operation, we found it really hard to get very high quality ski guides to help with the operation because it's a new operation and there's lots of chaos and you know, that sort of thing. So as a result, it was just such a huge priority for me to get that full certification as soon as possible. So I got that. It took me five years, which is really, you know, most people take a lot longer. So it was great that I could get that.
1: Yeah, but if there's one thing I know about you, Kieran, it's pretty much anything you put your mind to, you do and you do it well. It's quite frustrating for the rest of us <laughs> who struggle <laughs> along going, oh, I'll write a book, he says. Out comes this amazing piece of of writing that, that you know, you've, you've published yourself. We should probably start talking about that, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, how did you come around to, to getting your story? Onto the page, it
0: was kind of an organic process, you know. With the cancer, your sort of world sort of shrinks, and you're in and out of hospital like that. The year that I started it, I think I was in hospital for probably ninety days, so it's really wow. just difficult to plan you know, things or do other sort of work. So the writing seemed like, oh, well, that's very flexible. I can sort of just fit in little little bits and get on with it. And I wanted to leave something for the kids and sort of family to read as stories. Um, mm. Because you know, I, I thought initially I, I'll just write a bit of a self-help in terms of health, do A, B, and C. But it was just so boring <laughs> that, that I thought, well, I have to write it. This is stories with an emotional sort of content, so people will actually enjoy reading it, but also remember it. So that, that that's sort of how it sort
1: of happened. It's definitely a book of stories and some really fantastic rip-roaring stories and some very heartbreaking stories. You've got everything in that book, which has obviously happened in your life, and you've managed to write it in a very, very accessible way for many people. I don't know if I've loved it so much because I know you, so I can hear your voice as I'm reading it, or I know some of your story and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, and Or or if it would appear like that to people who don't know you. Have you had many people read it that don't know you yet? Not that many yet. Like I don't know
0: of anybody, but there's, there's a few people that I don't know very well that have read it sort of thing, just because they're just slightly connected yep. on Facebook or yep. that sort of thing. And there's been really great feedback from that sort of person as well. So that's been really encouraging.
1: I think one of the things about this book is most people, and I'm sure you've experienced this, or I'd love to hear your experience of it, most people when somebody presents with a terminal illness, people either lean in or they run the opposite direction because it's confronting and hard and difficult for them, not as much as it is for you, but it is for them. And by putting your story onto the page, Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional about it. By putting your story onto the page, it allows people to lean into you and talk to you about what you've gone through, what you're going through and what's happening in your life. Yep. Have you experienced that?
0: Yeah, I have. It's been really just so lovely, you know, to connect with so many people and, you know, particularly old friends and that have connected to different parts of the book. I had one old friend who, one of the themes is sort of been trying to deal with some of this anger that I had for, I'm not sure why exactly, but through my life and, and it sort of he connected with that particular part a lot and was talking about sort of how meaningful that was to sort of hear
1: that story and that theme sort of run through it, which was really nice. We should probably tell the listeners a little bit about how you came to have your diagnosis because you were a fit and healthy and in your 50s and you had the cat ski company. It was before COVID. Just as COVID was happening at the same time. What had
0: actually happened, I was just extremely stupid person. The year before we'd come back for a four-week holiday. Well, I was, I was back for a four-week holiday to Australia and it was just my 50th birthday and the government had sent the FIT test, which is the fecal coliography test, which is essentially the poo test. You poo a little bit into the jar and then you send it back and they tell you if you have colorectal cancer. And it, we were sort of living in Canada and I was just making up all excuses just not to do the test. Like I thought I was fit and healthy and I ate really well and that sort of thing, but I avoided doing that. And you didn't drink. You weren't a drinker either, were you? No drinking, no smoking my whole life. So I thought uh, it might be hard for them to get back, but I made up all these excuses. Paula, of course, uh, you know, nagged me and said, well, why don't you just do it? And anyway, I didn't do it. But if I had done that, it might have picked things up a year before, which might have changed the whole sort of diagnosis. So I think, you know, if anybody's out there and they get that test... Statistics show that fifty to sixty percent of people never do the test even though they get sent it. So I was one of those stupid people, so I encourage everybody not not to do that. <laughs> you know, do it right away, send it back. And it's not a perfect test. It's only about... 50 or 60% right, but it's still better than nothing. And uh, once you get to 45, you should get a colonoscopy as well because colon cancer is the second biggest cancer killer in Australia, but it's completely preventable if you catch it early. Anyway, that's my little cancer
1: message. How do you deal with that kind of anger or that lament?
0: It's just really hard. I just feel really, really sorry, you know, mostly for Paula and the kids that that was that silly because I should have just done it and, you know, maybe it would have. But it
1: may not have picked it up anyway. It may
0: not. But what I think happened then was I got um, COVID in early February of, I guess, 2020. 2020? Yeah, I think what happened is that that took the – uh, I was already had the cancer in there but that really distracted the whole immune system to fighting the you know the covid and I think that's where it just really took off essentially a few months later in April I had blood in my poo and then went to the doctor, got a colonoscopy, and they just found it right away.
1: Yeah, you have a delightful photo of your poo with blood in it. I know Paula
0: is saying you can't leave that in there. You can't
1: leave that in there. But I thought, you know, that, that's what it looks like, and and that, you know, I think um, it'd be awful. You know what? I reckon at this time you can do whatever you goddamn yeah. want. <laughs> if you want to put the if you want to put a photo of poo with your blood in it in your, in your book, go right ahead. Also, yep. I bet she didn't say take the photos out of her into her bikini. No. listeners there's quite a a, it's definitely a book worth reading it's um it's got a lot in it a lot about life and just like day-to-day life as well including you know broken hearts and new hearts and newfound love it's it's pretty freaking awesome This episode is supported by the North Face. The North Face fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966. Just provide the best gear for athletes and the modern day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors and inspire a global movement of exploration. Now, more than 55 years after its humble grand opening, the North Face delivers an extensive line of performance apparel, equipment and footwear. They push the boundaries of innovation so that you can push the boundaries of exploration. What I'm keen to know about is through that journey, and I hate that term journey, and I hate that thing of of your cancer journey. And and do you then become just defined by a person who has cancer, or are you still Kieran? Did you ever feel the struggle with no, that?
0: No, I've always just felt that you know oh, that I'm just doing my life, uh, you know, because I've been really strongly just trying to maintain all the stuff that I like to do and that sort of thing. But it is getting harder at the moment, like had sort of more and more pain. Your world just tends to contract when that happens. Don't want to go too far. And in any one week or two, there's a 30% chance you need to go to the hospital. So you don't want to go too far and you don't want to book any overseas trips because you don't want to end up in hospital overseas. And I think one of the beautiful things about this book is that sort of counteracted that process. So instead of just fully contracting, it sort of opened up quite a few other things and lines of communication and connection to people. So that's just been really lovely.
1: I'm really keen to know how skiing in the mountains have helped you along your particular last couple of years with your diagnosis. Because you've been out there, we've seen lots of footage of, I constantly see you skiing powder. Not long after an operation or not long before an operation, you're skiing party. you're out there foiling, uh, you wing foiling. foiling. Yep. you're windsurfing, you're running, you're doing all sorts of stuff. How has the great outdoors in the mountains helped you manage the vulnerability of facing mortality?
0: I'm not sure exactly, but like, you know, for instance, When I go down to go surfing or wing foiling, some days I just feel terrible and I have a lot of pain and you know maybe I have a little vomit just in the car park kind of thing. As I put the wetsuit on, I just start to feel like a hero. And then I start to get out there and start to catch waves and I leave that all behind. And I think that's the wonderful thing. And I've lost a lot of muscle mass kind of thing, but it's funny, I I still just get on the skis and it's just like magic. Doesn't feel any different. It just, you know, I'm still skiing all the same stuff and, you know, having fun. But you just leave all that behind and and as I said beforehand, you often just feel terrible and you're just dragging yourself along. But mm. there's that transition moment, suddenly you just start to awaken and feel good about it again. Do
1: you think that's muscle memory too, though, isn't it?
0: I don't know, but it's cool and that sort of keeps me sort of knowing that I'll get that sort of relief and freedom kind of thing pushes me or maybe doesn't push, it pulls me towards, you know, sort of continuing Mm. to get out and do
1: things. I think that most people that do ski and snowboard talk about that feeling of freedom and that with every turn you're taking, you're not thinking about anything else Mm -hmm. but skiing. So therefore, everything else that's happening in your life is just gone. So in a way, it's the ultimate meditation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it has helped you a lot. With your book, what was the hardest chapter to write? I'm not sure, but it was probably
0: the last one. But I'll probably have to write a new last one because I've lived longer than I thought. But it was probably two or three months ago. I just had this unbearable pain and it was so painful that I just couldn't sleep and I was taking the strongest painkillers and for about a week it was just this relentless grinding pain and then probably after about six or seven nights of that, I was up anyway because I couldn't sleep. So I wrote this last chapter. Um...
1: This is the one about Paula. But Yeah. That's okay. We don't have to talk about okay. it if you don't want to. It's a beautiful chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. And it's also a very generous giving chapter, a chapter about understanding that your wife is so wonderfully lovable. I've been so lucky. And um, yeah.
0: I'm not sure if that was the hardest right because it actually just sort of wrote itself. But, you know,
1: sort of emotionally, it's just, you know, it's just really difficult. I think then we're, perhaps we should talk about the joy. What is the most joyous chapter you've written? What was the easiest? What was the one that flowed the most, that gave you the most joy while writing? I'm not exactly
0: sure, actually. That's, that's that's a great question, Rach. There's probably a few. One of the early ones, sort of growing up fighting, just sort of wrote itself as well, kind of thing. So that was that was sort of pretty unusual. And I think... A lot of parts of the other chapters really sort of came together well. Like there's a little short chapter about our sort of European vacation that was really just such a happy little sort of snippet kind of thing, sort of from life and that sort of thing.
1: The chapter on the avalanche, was that easy to write?
0: No, it wasn't actually. Mostly because I sort of had to do a lot of research and just a lot of talking to people because it probably comes at that avalanche, probably from the perspective of almost 20 or 30 different people. It's quite a complex chapter, yeah. That's right. So I had to talk to them all sort of carefully. Some of it I remember talking and, you know, just after the avalanche, but I sort of reconnected with most of those people and sort of talked to them about it sort of again after all this time. It was sort of just trying to get things right. And then I had to be Towards the end, you know, I did quite a few different versions of it and, you know, I had to be really careful that I didn't cause anybody too much pain by what I sort of wrote as well. So I had to change that and, you know, as I sort of did the next version and that sort of thing, I would sort of keep adjusting things to sort of account for some of those feelings and that sort of thing as well. So it was a difficult Chapter, but uh, probably in a lot of ways, one of the most rewarding.
1: Yeah, I felt that. Yeah,
0: a lot of work went into it, and I, I tried to get just closer and closer to the real truth behind it, and sort of what really happened. and And even my recollections weren't perfect when I sort of when I talked to other people about it. Like, um, for instance, it was great to talk to Colin Zacharias, who's a, one of the best. Ski guides in the world, I think. And he came and did the investigation for us. And he'd kept really meticulous notes on the investigation and that sort of thing. So that was incredibly helpful, like in in starting to just get the
1: details exactly right, sort of thing. There's a lot of chapters that really move me, but that chapter in particular really stuck with me. And I've gone back and read it a number of times because it is so detailed. It's also so incredibly brave to write it because there are moments where you say, we did this wrong. I did this wrong. Yeah. This person did this right. This person did this wrong. Now, that's a really brave thing to do and to put into writing, particularly in a North American world of, of, you know, North American Context. context of litigation. And the brevity it would have taken to write all of that and the ability to take accountability for what did and didn't happen. To put it into context for those that are listening, just briefly tell us quickly, there was an avalanche. How many people got buried in your Catskill oppression?
0: Yeah. It was a really big avalanche and it took me quite a while just to unravel all the pieces, but essentially eight people were involved in the avalanche to start with. Four people got buried and five people got seriously injured and and one of those people in particular, you know, absolutely Mm. should have died, but somehow, you know, he got and we got just incredibly lucky sort of thing. Yeah. It's a really difficult thing because – What's happened through the avalanche industry is that we've been trying to develop a culture of sharing these things so Mm -hmm. that we can learn the lessons. But the real problem is that it's worked really well for recreationalists. So after an avalanche in Canada, there's a really good account almost right away of exactly what happened, the mistakes that were made, and the lessons learned. But in the commercial sector, the same thing's not happening at all. Uh, So, for instance, even this last winter, there were just a bunch of terrible avalanches, uh, accidents, some involving nine people sort of thing. It's just totally opaque. There's no information. There's nothing being shared. And the reason, of course, is that the operators are desperately worried about being sued, like I was, and that their operation just... You know, will cease to exist. They're not just worried about money, but they're worried about all their team's jobs and their future. And so, it's not just a simple equation. But as a result, there's this kind of mismatch in the industry. And after about two years, there's a two-year window in which people can file a suit. But theoretically, even then, after then, it's it's possible that somebody could you know, bring a resuit based on some sort of new information being revealed. As a result, there's all these accidents happening and the lessons from them are not being shared at all. And so that's just such a huge missed opportunity. And for Big Red Cats, there was this accident and a few more, and I just didn't want that to uh, be not remembered sort of thing, because if it's not remembered and if you just then you start to repeat those same mistakes or you let go of some of those measures that you implemented as a result of that accident because people just forget the reason why, sort of thing. And so I didn't want that to happen. So so there's this probably three or four stories in the book that are were really just put in for that reason so that they
1: wouldn't be forgotten. It's a big learning chapter. Yeah. huge learning chapter. Yeah, It's a big chapter to write, a big chapter to read, which is why I've reread it a few times because it is massively learning. What were the other stories that you felt really needed to be put down for history's sake? I think in the second or third year, we had a, a terrible av- accident with this
0: young lady called Magdalena and she's just the nicest person. I'd skied with her before and that sort of thing. And she was buried a meter 40 deep. And we were so lucky to get her out alive. And we obviously learned a huge number of lessons from that accident. It was just so impactful because initially she just had no feeling in her fingers or even her toes or legs. We thought she was going to be completely paralyzed there for a moment. When she woke up, she was just like, oh God, oh God. But then the most interesting thing was just a few months later, she just totally changed her life. She'd got pregnant. She'd quit the job that she hated. She'd gotten a new one. She'd sort of asked her boyfriend to get married. And it all just happened as a result of this. And it was really sort of transformative, but just sort of highlighted to me the stakes of what we were dealing with that because that was our first big accident that people's lives were really at stake and just had huge
1: responsibilities there. I think we often forget that as skiers and snowboarders because we fall in love with the feeling of freedom that we talked about before and often we'll do whatever we can to get that sense of freedom and sometimes take too big a risk that has huge consequences. But all of these challenges that you've experienced in Big Red Cats, which you've now unsold, will have helped you in recent years, surely? Absolutely. Like probably the biggest thing is that we just took every
0: chance and every opportunity. And as a result, I, I don't have any regrets in this situation. And that's a wonderful place to be, you know, other than just leaving Paula and the kids. But I don't like... Have this burning list of bucket list things that I need to do, because I've done them all kind of thing mm. and had such a full life that feel you know lucky more than anything if you asked me to trade for another thirty years, but I didn't get the last twenty years, you know I wouldn't do it sort of thing so wow
1: that's a bigger mission isn't it? Before we finish up, let's talk about the title of your book, Growth, Truth, Adventure, Love. First of all, how did you get the title?
0: Thinking about getting engaged and getting engaged. We thought about what our marriage wanted to look like. And Paula and I came up with those four words, growth, truth, adventure, love. And we've tried to live by those. And then... When we got our wedding rings, uh, I got it engraved in my ring sort of underneath and all that time. And we tried to use those sort of words as sort of a guiding principles as to sort of how we wanted to live our lives. And, and that's what we did. Made an app title for your book. How can people find your book? Where do we find it? Apple Books or on Amazon. And it's just a, an e-book there. Um, sadly, there's no printed books yet although I'm going to make some up. But it's kind of been slowed down because of living a little bit longer. And I thought, well, I've got to write another chapter now. So <laughs> I'll just add one. And I didn't want to print out a whole bunch of books without, you know, potentially another last chapter. So I
1: think you'll keep writing a few more chapters yet.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but I think the exciting thing is, is I just finished the audio book. What I've done with that, is I sort of haven't made it into an audio book, but I've just released each chapter as a podcast. So you can listen to that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google. And that's a really nice way. And I've just been astounded by the number of people that have been listening. I think there's like, uh, I think it's like two, uh, you know, well over 2,000, Individual listens so far, which is it's only been up for a couple of weeks. So, and that's
1: um, under Growth Truth Adventure Love, or is that your name? Yeah, just Growth Truth Adventure. So
0: I'll keep that up there for I don't know another two or three months. And then I'll probably just convert that into an audio book and put it on Audible or something like that. But I'm not sure yet. It's actually just really nice to have it so accessible. Like podcasts, it's just so easy. You can listen to it while you're on
1: your commute or cleaning the house or that sort of thing. And that's free. That podcast is free. Yeah. But the book exactly. itself, cost of, the, of purchasing the book, where's that money going to? I think on... Apple Books and Amazon, it's about 25 bucks,
0: and I've just done half to Sammy's ski racing. That's my daughter, my oldest daughter. Who is a ski and racer to, for
1: Australia, can we say?
0: Yes. Yes. And the other half it was is it just to the local oncology unit, but nice. they don't want it. So uh-huh. what I'm doing with that is they said, give it to this local volunteer group that helps pe- cancer people around here, helps with buying drugs and getting to appointments. And they do a really wonderful job of helping people. So, so that's where that's
1: going to. Okay. Awesome. Well, I know you must be uh, pretty tired after your chemo this morning. So, we really, really yeah. appreciate having spent time with you today. And I can't yeah. thank you personally enough for writing that book. I think it's a must read for anybody, whether they ski or not, It's a huge life affirmation. All eleven hundred and something pages of it. It's It's a lot. I know it's quite long. The good
0: news is, uh, the good news is, a lot of that is pictures. If you're reading the ebook, it is a lot of
1: pictures. Yeah, a lot of pictures, and a lot of pictures of Paula in a bikini.
0: I know. Well, (laughs) you've got to take your inspiration where you get it from. I do have to say that Um,
1: one, that one chapter where you talk quite a lot about what happened to you up in Cooling while you're in you're in like having your twenty fourth honeymoon or something. I'm like, Okay, all right. (laughs) Do we need that much information? (laughs)
0: <laughs> the funny thing is uh, I went into the chemo today and there's yeah. two nurses there that have been right up to date oh, no. on, on the podcast, so they got to the end of it. So they were, they were like this morning, oh my God, I don't think I needed to know that much. So. What
1: did your kids say when they read that particular chapter? It's quite racy, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I think they were just a little bit like, you know, just sort of hang their head a little bit and I don't really want to know this. But, yeah, um, I reckon
1: you can write whatever you want though at this stage. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Kieran. I hope to read the next chapter and a chapter again after that. Thank you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Rach. Thanks for listening to the Snow's Best podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Like at Miss All on socials. And hit up the snowsbest.com website for everything you need to know snow.